morning. Uh, I've been away for a few weeks and um, been up in Erbil, northern Iraq. A few people have been asking me about that. And uh, I just want to say that the church in Erbil, Mac, and Leanne, and others that you might know there, uh, send their greetings, and they're doing well by God's grace. And uh, thanks for praying for me and for us. Chris joined me the last week that I was there. Thanks for praying for us while we were there. Uh, next week, just so you know, uh, one of the elders from the church in Erbil is going to join us uh, here uh, in, in Covenant Hope. Uh, he's wanting to see what uh, our church is like, and so they'll be joining us. Uh, so looking forward to that. Chris and I, at the end of this month, are going to be grandparents. We're really excited about that. And every week, Chris gets an email with an update about how she, or really Jennifer, is progressing in her, in her labor, or not her labor, in her uh, pregnancy. Little Isabella growing every week. It's interesting because this email compares uh, the size of the baby with fruit. Uh, first one we got, I think it was week five, the little baby was a lentil. And then by uh, week 36, she was a melon. And uh, so we're excited uh, this, this month. Chris will go back uh, next Saturday, and the baby will be born soon. But what a miracle. What a miracle that birth is. The little life that's formed when DNA that comes from mother and father unite in, in Jennifer's womb. That DNA that formed little Isabella is the same DNA that will transform her from embryo to child to adult. It's the program that dictates the growth and the development of every organ, every feature. Her heart, her hair, the color of her eyes, how tall she'll be. You know, the gospel is to the life and development of the church as DNA is to the life and development of humans. The main point of our sermon today is this. God's gospel is forming and transforming his church. God's gospel is forming and transforming his church. If you're taking notes, we'll consider each of these points. First, the gospel forms the church. And secondly, the gospel transforms the church. Now, Acts 17, which we just read, thanks, Gigi, picks up in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. The journey uh, includes the gospel's entry into Macedonia and Greece. And the first place that the church is formed is a place called Philippi. It's the same city from where uh, the letter that is written to the Philipp Philippians is. It's a book in our New Testament. Perhaps you've heard of that. From Philippi, Paul, Silas, and Timothy arrive in Thessalonica, and they spend three weeks there in the synagogue teaching and persuading from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Their preaching leads several to believe from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds, and, and even it said that some people from high social status come to faith. The power of the gospel forms the church in Thessalonica, and persecution quickly follows. Accusations erupt. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. <laughs> what, a, what a statement. What an accusation, right? The gospel turns people upside down, or, or we could say right side up, and the watching world takes notice. Because believers resist conformity to the patterns of the world, affliction, suffering, persecution are normal for the Christian life. Now, the, the apostles are kicked out of Thessalonica, but the power of the gospel and even persecution continue to follow them as they move on to Berea. Paul is driven away from Berea also, and he leaves Silas and Timothy there 
to support and teach in both of these churches a little while longer. And they finally come and join Paul again in Athens. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, Paul clearly states that we sent Timothy to learn about your faith and to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Timothy comes back to Paul and Silas a little later while they're in Corinth with the update from Thessalonica. We get a little taste of that that update in chapter 3, verse 6 of this letter. Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. It was after receiving Timothy's report that Paul writes this first letter to the church in Thessalonica. Now we know that Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth, so it might be within the Thessalonian church's second year that they received this letter, which got me thinking, covenant hope, we're in our second year. So think about that as we go through this letter. We're facing some afflictions being moved here and there, but like the Thessalonians, we're pushing forward in the gospel. Well, that's a quick summary of the background. Let's read the entire passage now. It's uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You can read along with me in your Bible. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul begins with uh, the, the pattern of his normal greetings and blessings as he says grace to you and peace. And did you notice he includes here a letter, it's not just from him, but from Silas or Silvanus, uh, is how he used the, his name there in the greeting, and Timothy. Why? Because they were partners in the formation of the church. Our first point, the gospel forms the church. Here in, in verses four and five, we pick up on a theme that will run throughout Paul's letter That theme is of knowing. There in verse four, we know. And then halfway through verse five, you know. Highlighting what both he and they understand about how the gospel forms this church. What Paul knows, he knows that the gospel begins with God and that the gospel came with the authority of the Holy Spirit. And what do the Thessalonians know? They know the integrity with which the apostles brought the gospel. So first, Paul knows that the gospel begins with God. It's God who's taking the initiative here. It was God's sovereign will and choosing them in the gospel that formed this church in Thessalonica. Acts 16 tells how the Holy Spirit would not allow Paul and the apostles to speak in Asia, in fact, and finally, through a vision, God leads Paul and the apostles to cross over to Macedonia 
immediately there, the gospel begins to take root in Philippi, in Thessalonica, and in Berea. And these churches were formed as people responded to, the, to God's offer of grace in Christ Jesus. The gospel, the gospel, that word, that word means it, it is the joyful message from God that leads to salvation. This gospel reveals that, that God is perfect, that he's holy, that he's the creator, but that we are rebels turned away from God. We turned away from the God who made us, and that's why salvation and the church's formation must begin with God's choosing because we've chosen to go the other way. Apart from his initiation, we are dead in our sins. We're separated from Christ. We're without hope, without God in the world. The gospel that forms the church is rooted in God's love. As you see there in verse four, where he says, brothers, loved by God, he chose you. The good news in the gospel is that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's an amazing truth. On the cross, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, bore the punishment of God for the guilt and shame of our sin. He removes that sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And it says in the Bible that he gives to us his righteousness. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God. The sovereign king over all the universe reaches out to us with grace in Christ to save those he calls to himself. Friends, we bring nothing to this bargaining table. No merit on our part, nothing that's desirable in us. And I would say, friend, if you are not a child of God, know that What is ahead for you is to die in your sin. Death is the one sure thing in life, and after death comes judgment. You will stand alone on that edge of death where there exists a vast gulf between you and God, between your just condemnation and God's holiness. It is impossible to cross. No construction of man is able to save. You are dead in your sin. You need a God-sized solution, and Jesus is God's solution. Somewhere deep in your soul, I'm sure that you have wrestled with this question, am I right with God? Well, let, let me tell you, if you're, if you're thinking that even right now, this is good. It's a good thing because in this awareness, it could be that God is calling you in love to turn to him. If you're aware of your sin before God right now, know this, that he has provided the way of reconciliation. You need only to repent and believe in Christ. This means responding to him just like the Thessalonians. They, in faith, like verse 10 says, turned from their idols, from the things that they were serving in their life to serving the living and true God. You can do this today. Talk with me or the friend that brought you and trust Christ. Now, deciding to trust Christ and follow him, it may just involve a high cost for some. Such a decision may cause conflict with those around you, perhaps your family, or 
For me, when I came to Christ, I lost nearly every friend that I ever had growing up. They thought I was crazy. Conflict was true for Paul and the apostles in nearly every city that they went to. And Paul writes this letter to encourage the Thessalonians who were going through affliction for their faith. It's, it's something we can count on. But listen, whatever cost that you faced when you came to faith or that you will face if you come to faith, to follow Jesus, there is nothing compared to the eternal hope that we find in his unfailing love. The other thing that Paul knows, in God's choosing them, they are adopted into God's family. Did you see that? He calls them, in verse four, he calls them brothers. Even though they are not naturally related to him in any way. In these days, we've, we've gotten really used to family terms. Hey, brother, hey, sister. But in those days, that would have been very strange. The gospel, you see, that the gospel that forms the church brings people from, from wherever they are, different lands and different cultures, different backgrounds, to a true family in Christ. There is no official language that one has to pray and there's no one place that you, you direct all your prayers. The gospel speaks to a universal problem that people from every nation tongue and tribe experience, and that is our sin before our holy creator. Now, what a privilege that we have here at Covenant Hope as you look around and you see people from every nation, tongue and tribe right here. I'm so encouraged when I hear about an, an Arab woman and a Singaporean and a Filipina woman who are meeting together weekly to read the Bible. Frequently, I see my Indian, European, American, British, and Nigerian brothers laughing together and enjoying each other's company, and I know that they hold a weekly accountability gathering as they seek to live holy lives and hold one another to that. Paul knows that the gospel that forms the church begins with God. And second thing he knows is that the gospel that forms a church came to the Thessalonians with authority and in integrity. And we're going to look at those two things specifically. Now, authority has to do with who the gospel came from and how it gets there. Integrity has to do with how the apostles live out the gospel before others. The first thing to notice there in verse 5, look there, is that Paul calls it our gospel. It was Paul, the apostle authorized by Jesus to preach to the Gentiles, along with Silvanus and Timothy, who brought the gospel to Thessalonica. They, these apostles are the spiritual fathers of this church. Now, twice Paul refers to the gospel as the word. Look there in verse 5 where he says, our gospel came to you not only in word, and then in verse 6 he says, how you received the word with much affliction. The gospel that forms the church is exactly that. It is a word from God that brings salvation. And salvation doesn't come any other way. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So you may be wondering, if the word of the gospel is what forms the church, why does Paul say here, our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit? Is Paul saying that the word's not sufficient? Absolutely not. Actually, Paul is pointing out that the gospel that forms the church came in authority as attested by the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, into heaven, he told the disciples back in Acts 1.8, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in, in, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
when the church spread into each of those areas, the Holy Spirit confirmed the gospel's advance with miraculous signs. But in every case, it was only after the preaching of the word. The Spirit's authentication was essential in jump-starting the church at Pentecost, where we see that in, in Acts 2 in Jerusalem. Again, in Acts 8, as the church moves from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, the, the Spirit confirms. In Acts 10, the gospel moves beyond Jewish believers to include Gentile believers. And it was the Spirit's authentication that helped the, Jewish, the Jerusalem council confirm, in Acts 15, you can read about this, that the church was truly being formed even among the Gentiles. In saying that our gospel came not only in word but in power in the Holy Spirit, Paul is pointing to the authority in which the gospel came. Rather than saying that somehow miraculous signs were a help to the success of their ministry. Friends, I know that sometimes uh, these miracle stories that you find on YouTube or, or even friends that come and talk to you, they can be enticing or exciting. Several years ago, we had some students that came into our office. Uh, they were excitingly describing their new church and how and even gold dust was falling from the ceiling and, and manna was appearing in our Bibles. Those that were, were listening said, hey, did you collect the gold dust for like an offering to give to the poor? But of course, you know, as quickly as it, as it appeared, it had disappeared. Friends, be careful. Be careful of anyone pointing to miracles as proof that God is in their midst, especially when those things aren't even found in the scriptures. The gospel that forms a church came in the authority of the word and was attested by the authority of the Holy Spirit. And it was in that authority that the apostles preached with full conviction, as we see there in, in verse five. Church, Covenant Hope, we have this same authority. It is the foundation for our gospel preaching. And you get it from, from Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The Bible says that we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Believer in Jesus, you have a job description. You're an ambassador. And Christ has delegated you to work on immigration. Immigration to the kingdom of God. And you also, as an ambassador, you have the authority to advance the name and the values of your king. And of course, you're expected to live by those yourself. Which leads me to the next part of how the gospel came, which is integrity. Integrity in living out what is preached affects how the gospel is received. Look again there at the end of verse 5, where Paul says, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. The gospel that forms the church must be backed up by a life of integrity to the gospel. The good news that the apostles believed in and preached with full conviction had a transforming effect on their own day to day. And this was visible to the Thessalonians and to anyone else that they spoke to and it gave credibility to the message that they preached. How Sad it is when sin takes out a pastor. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this has been happening all too often. You know, even as the watching world takes note of gospel transformation, what we, what we were reading there in Acts 17, 
so also the world takes notice of gospel inconsistency. Elders, deacons and deaconesses, church staff, and and even those that are seen as natural leaders within the church, we are held to a standard for this very reason. All of us are. But as I've seen, often it is leaders who fall that have developed a hard shell that doesn't allow for accountable relationships. And while they've gone, at the same time, they've gone soft on a personal view of the gospel for personal holiness. But leaders are Christians too. And we all need to live holy lives. Our identity must remain firmly in gospel truth that we are sinners saved by grace. And we need to conduct our lives in accountability with those who are in our communities. We need a rock-solid center on the gospel with a soft-shell exterior to allow others in. Church, pray for your leaders. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your deacons. Be careful of treating church leaders as celebrity. Uh, So not just the church leaders here, but, but the church leaders in the broader church. They're sinners just like all of us, depending on grace. So then, the gospel forms the church And it begins with God and comes in his authority and is backed up by lives of integrity. That was the first point. The next point of the sermon is that God's gospel is transforming the church. Look back there in verses 2 and 3 where Paul prays for the Thessalonian believers. Paul points to three specific ways that he sees God's gospel transforming the Thessalonian believers, and that motivates his prayer of thanksgiving. Reading that again, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those that have read Scripture Uh, you know that Paul often mentions faith, hope, and love in his letters. Each of these is significant in the life of the believer, and we're going to look at each of these, the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope, along with how Paul sees this specifically in the Thessalonian church. So first, their work of faith. Now, I should say that saving faith is a gift from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, says Ephesians 2.8. Paul, Silas, and Timothy saw that this gift was given in those weeks of their preaching when they were there. People were being saved and the church was just getting started. And even their faith was tested in those afflictions that he refers to. And we see it also in, in verse 10 where he says that those Gentile believers had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. This was a gift. And Paul refers to the working of their faith in verse 8. Look there again. See how the report of their faith has gone everywhere. In fact, it's so visible and reported so far and wide that Paul says, we don't need to say anything. Their reception of the apostles and their reception of the gospel message had gone out everywhere. Everyone else is telling Paul what an amazing response to the gospel happened in Thessalonica. Did you hear? Can you imagine what joy would have filled Paul's heart as he hears that report coming back to him? And it's the same way for me with with you guys. I hear from others about your faith. What an encouragement to us. What an encouragement to the broader church that you are. So praise God for what he's doing in our midst. But, But notice 
Notice the activity associated with these qualities. It is a work of faith. And and what I want to say here is that faith is not just a a mental acceptance of truths. It's, It's trusting that moves you to action. Because we have faith, because we have faith in a law, we don't fear now when the light turns green, when the traffic signal turns green, we don't fear to go because we know that the people coming the other way that have the red light are going to stop. Now, it wasn't always that way in Dubai, and I used to sit there for a while because I didn't trust, I didn't have faith that the people coming the other way were actually going to stop. But now I do. Faith leads to action. Next, we have their labor of love. Love is one of the attributes of God's character. We, we can't even understand God apart from love. Listen what R.C. Sproul says about this. Whatever else God's love is, it is holy, meaning it's transcendent, that is, set apart and different from everything we experience in creation. And it is pure, he says, absolutely flawless, having no selfishness, no wickedness, or any sin mixed in with it. That's God's love. But though the love of God is transcendent, it's an attribute that he shares with us so that we can have love among one another. Because God chose us in love, we've learned firsthand a demonstration of divine love. We we know what that kind of love is like. And we are able to love because God first loved us. This is why John, the gospel writer, ties love with knowing God so closely in his first letter. He says, whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. And he says it the opposite way too. Anyone who does not love does not know God Because God is love. Now, again, Paul calls this a labor of love. Now, getting ready to have a grandchild, that word labor is something that I'm thinking about more often. And it's not not something that you go through lightly. (laughs) Therefore, Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It wasn't a walk in the park for Christ to give himself up for us. And we are called to love like that. Now, love requires others. You cannot love alone. And you you can't love anonymously. It requires knowing and being known. Love also, it isn't just, it's not something that's just seen when things are going well. (laughs) Love is one of those things that is proven when things are difficult, like giving birth to a baby. We are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Friends, are you laboring in love? Do you pour out to to others love even when it hurts or even when it's inconvenient? Now, love is a, a powerful witness in the church. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul is so encouraged by the love between these Thessalonians that he says later in chapter four, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. Covenant Hope, you are a loving church. 
really, from the first days a little over a year ago, your love for Christ and for one another has been evident. I see it in the care that you have for one another, in, in helping a brother who, who can't pay his rent, and, and people are, are helping people with that, in celebrating and rejoicing with those who rejoice, in mourning with those who mourn. Another example is, is the hosting of the baby showers for the, the ladies that were about to give birth, or now they have given birth. I, I see this as you gather together to disciple one another in the truth and strengthen one another in the word. And even as you reach out to bring back those who are straying away, you're a loving community. And praise God for that. And as Paul's encouragement in chapter 4, verse 10, I would say also, I urge you, brothers and sisters, do this more and more. Paul commends these Thessalonians in their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. Now, our hope real, lasting, and solid hope is found only in the gospel. Otherwise, like we said before, we are utterly hopeless. All other hopes that we might have are temporary and unreliable. You know, you, you, may, you may hope for a happy life, a better job, or, a, or a, if you're not married, a good spouse. These are circumstantial and they're only going to last as long as you last, or maybe not even that long. But when we hope in that which is eternal, we wait patiently for it. Hope that is in Christ is founded on the promises of God, and they are made in the gospel of Christ that we've been talking about. When you hope in Christ, like one of the hymns that we sing around here from time to time, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And he has proved himself over and over and over. Paul specifically commends these Thessalonians for their steadfastness of hope in the way that they face affliction. Look there in verse six. He says, for you receive the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. This is not happiness based on circumstances. Their circumstances were pretty awful, actually. Remember in Acts 17, they were facing opposition from their families, from the portion of the synagogue that did not believe, and even from the city who formed a mob and stirred up the city into an uproar. Some, like, like specifically named Jason, was dragged to court and has his goods and his wealth confiscated from him. And yet, they receive the word with joy in the midst of affliction. Brothers and sisters, has your faith in Christ come with affliction? If so, take courage. Take courage. It's not strange, it's normal. Peter says in, in his letter, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You know, in another place in Philippians, Paul says it has been granted to us not only to believe on Christ, but also to share in his sufferings. It's a gift. Now, some of our members are facing very real and sometimes threatening circumstances from their families. Some have colleagues at the workplace or school who ridicule them and purposely make life difficult because of their faith in Christ. One young man told me that his friends make fun of Christians and Christianity nearly every day. Can you imagine the pressure we need to pray for them and support them in their affliction. We are their spiritual family. We are their eternal family in Christ. And it's up to us to be partners with those so treated. Hope in Christ 
helps us to get through the sufferings of this present age. This is because we're looking for our final rest, our final rest in him. And the Thessalonians had that hope as they saw, as, as, as we can see in Paul's encouragement to them in verse 10, where he says they were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We endure in hope because one day Jesus will come. And that will complete our sanctification. Our sin will be no more. These mortal bodies will be transformed into immortality. And we will see our Redeemer face to face. Friend, are you looking forward to that day? Is your hope in that day? What are you placing your hope on? Is it on the temporal and unreliable, something that will have only value in this fleeting life? Or is it in the rock-solid promises of God, the joy of the glory of those in Christ that we will have that day when he returns and calls us home? We sang about it. God's God's gospel is transforming his church. And this continues from generation to generation as his church imitates the Lord and imitates those who have gone before. We're going to look at that where, I think it's verse 6, 5 and 6. You know, I came across an old picture that Chris had taken of me from the back where I was holding hands with my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter who is actually now pregnant with our granddaughter. Even at such a young age, one can see the imitation in her step. Uh, it, was, it brought to mind how pretty much anything that we learn comes through imitation. Whether it's a child learning to walk or a student learning to drive, a young woman relying on her mother's recipes, or even an engineer reading a manual. It's by imitation. These Thessalonians were living out their faith through what they had seen in the apostles. Verse 5 says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. They were watching. They were learning. And in verse, five, or verse 6, he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul's encouraged. He, he, the, the understanding and application of the gospel that Christ revealed and that was heard from and authentically seen in these apostles, he now sees in the Thessalonians themselves. Now, if imitation is the primary way that we learn, and, and I think it is, then we need to find ways to put ourselves in relationships where imitation is possible, right? In today's privatized world, that's going to be a little countercultural. But we found that the best way for this to happen is in intentionally life together relationships. Intentionally life together relationships. You can call it ILT relationships. One of my friends here, who's a guy like that, he always wanted to acronym things. So, ILT relationships. That's what we're talking about. We've done this, and others here at Covenant Hope have done this by having people live in our homes. Now, I know that's not going to be the case for everybody. Not everyone can do that. But at one point, Chris and I had two Filipinos, two Nigerians, an Angolan, and a Pakistani living in our home at one time, along with our children. But again, it's not just life together. It's intentional life together. The guys and I would have prayer meeting every morning at 8 a.m. And then we would gather on Sundays for community dinner uh, where we would gather not only the people that were currently living in my house but the people who formerly lived in my house as well. In those times, we would read books together. One that, that I, I, 
really enjoyed was uh, a book called 20 Christian Beliefs. Or sometimes we would just pop questions. You know, having people in our home like that, we might have other meals around or random conversations at the kitchen or, or in the living room about life, about work, about relationships, money, sex, the Bible, theological terms, posi- and, and other po- you know, theological positions. It was far more than what could happen on a weekend at church or even I- I- having a small group meeting added to that. Now, members of Covenant Hope, I am encouraged because I look out and I see in you what Paul was seeing in these Thessalonians. The same gospel that was forming and transforming their church is happening here too. But it can't be taken for granted. We, we, we need to protect this gospel, right? That's why we practice here at, at Covenant Hope the, the idea of membership. Not only do we think that it's biblical, but it's, it's also a way to practice loving community together. We see membership as a way to protect the gospel among us. Now, when people join here, we're proclaiming our faith in God's gospel. We're covenanting together to live out the implications of that gospel as a family of believers. Therefore, in our membership process, we want to know two things. Your understanding of the gospel and how it has been formed in you and how your life is being transformed by the gospel. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Be it it the Thessalonians who Paul is commending or we today, God's gospel forms and transforms his church. Just like DNA, that same gospel that forms the church is also transforming the church. Friends, the gospel is forming covenant hope. How is the gospel forming in you? The gospel is transforming covenant hope. Are you a part of that transformation? Are you growing in the gospel of God? Are you imitating Christ and those who are going before you in the faith? Now, many in Covenant Hope are meeting together, reading the Bible, reading good books. There are several examples of folks that are leading intentional life relationship, intentional life together relationships of accountability, of imitation. Are you one of them? If you're not involved in an intentionally accountable relationship or you think that perhaps one that you're in is maybe coming to an end, I want you to think of two people right now, two people in this church of the same gender with you. Uh, So men, men, girls, girls. I want you to think of two people in this church that you would consider spiritually imitatable. Okay, just take a moment, think of two people. Got them? Okay, now guess what I'm going to do? I want you to think of two more. Okay? Now, oftentimes the first people that are thought of are the most visible. But there are a lot of people here who are spiritually imitatable. I want you to think of two more right now. Different people than you thought of before. Think of two. Everybody got two? Now, what I want you to do is to go up to that person, one of those two people, and, and ask them if they would meet with you. If you feel shy to go up and ask somebody that question, I just open the door for you. Okay? So just say, Pastor David told us that we had to go up and do this, and so I'm coming up to talk to you now. Will you please meet with me? Okay, so that's what I want you to do, okay? So be bold. If you've never done this before, if you're still a little shy, then come talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders or one of the elders' wives, and we will help you. One more question. 
are you imitatable? Are you someone that would have been thought of? Are you imitatable? How, how might you prepare yourself to be someone that others in this church want to follow? Look, the best way to do this is to imitate Christ. And you learn how to, you learn his ways through his word. And you can learn his ways by imitating others as they imitate Christ. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to keep on loving one another more and more. Give yourself to God's gospel that forms and transforms his church. Let's pray. Father God, Father, in the gospel you have displayed your great love for those you have chosen. And we're so grateful that you would display this love in Christ's death on the cross to save sinners like us. And then you give us the ministry of reconciliation. You, 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 you call us to be ambassadors, to bring others into the family of God. Help us to proclaim your gospel boldly and clearly. And Lord, you, Father, you adopt us into your family as brothers and sisters. We, we long, Lord, to learn how to walk like the family walks, to love like Christ loved us and to gave himself up for us. Teach us how we might love our brothers and sisters more like you do. We, we want to know each other and, and we want to know you better. Help us to be countercultural and pursue these intentional life together relationships that ultimately bring honor to your name as we walk together in holiness and love. For we ask this in Christ's name, amen.